Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit. Today, we are recording via Zoom. We are a concept partner to BruceDetroit.com. I am Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. All right, it's time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. This week for Hot Takes, Donna and I have Brandon Hodges joining us from Tribe Development. Brandon, welcome to Authentically Detroit for the first time. Thank you, brother. It's it's been far too long. I'm glad I'm I'm here with you guys and appreciate it. We're glad to have you. Thanks. It's been a long time coming. First off, how are the both of you? Donna, how you doing? I'm doing well. Doing really well. I had yeah. a rest weekend, and you know, towards the end of last week, I needed it, <laughs> so I got it, and I'm feeling good this Monday. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing. I'm doing really well. Pretty busy uh, Monday morning and afternoon, but uh, really excited to. This is one of my favorite things to do: to be and hold space for conversation with you and folks who are doing some cool stuff in the city of Detroit, Brandon. How you doing, man? How's the day finding you? I cannot complain, man. The sun's out. It wouldn't matter if I could complain. I'm doing well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you get points with us because you are um, a fellow Eastsider. We like that. We like when Eastside people join us on the phone. And, you know, we really, really, really like when Eastside people are trying to do good things for the East Side. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Good things. We deserve it over here. We absolutely deserve it. Our people deserve everything that everybody else deserves, you know, um, and that's not quite the way um, it's shaping up in terms of how the state policy and city policy is rolling down. So we're going to talk to you a little bit about what that looks like. Absolutely. Yeah, let's get into it. So uh, there's an article in Bridge Detroit this afternoon by my colleague Malachi Barrett. Winners and losers in the battle for Detroit development funds. So this is a story um, about some pandemic relief funds that are flowing into the downtown area for the uh, management upkeep of some downtown Detroit parks and some other um, physical development projects. It was the uh, Michigan Strategic Fund and its RAP program that had approved about 22 grants, right? Um, It's revitalization and placemaking. That's what RAP means. And about 59 Detroit developers applied to take advantage of these RAP program funds and were encouraged to do so, thinking that neighborhood development projects uh, could, you know, qualify and be eligible for some of these subsidies. What ended up happening, Donna Givens-Davidson and Brandon Hodges, is that the Downtown Detroit Partnership was the sole recipient of all of the funds that were flowing into the city of Detroit. I want to say it was about $13.7 million 
in that area, right? For park revitalization, our downtown Detroit parks need a lot of work, Donna Gibbs-Davidson. Oh, they do. They do. I get so down at night. You know, before they kick me out at 10 p.m., I'm terrified. They're so bad. It's such a great conversation to have after last week's conversation about financialization, mm-hmm. because the question is who really benefits. And um, I think, Brandon, um, before we really got started today, you talked about something like 79% of the dollars went towards traditional economic development projects. Is that correct? So the interesting thing is when the Cranes article came out about the, the Downtown Detroit Partnership Award, what they didn't reveal was how those funds were going to be allocated, right? So there's $13.74 million, but then you kind of have to do some digging to figure out which projects get the allocation of those awards. And what you see is that there's an outsized portion that is, are going to Bedrock and Richard Park, right? Yeah. Ten million out of the thirteen million is going to traditional real estate development projects, even though the play was this kind of live play park experience. So it begs the question: What's really at hand, right? Like, is is this a really a public space track project strategy, or is it a different way of just funneling more money downtown, which would right. have an right. and also more money to investors? Because as downtown gets richer, the investors benefit. Right? It's not just downtown developers that benefit. Um, you know, throwing Paradise Valley because you have to have a little color in there. And that's cool. But then Paradise Valley, all the black organizations and black Paradise Valley have already been pushed out. I mean, I'm waiting for some to come back. I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but I'm still salty over the car center no longer having its, you know, permanent place in that community. Uh, I, You know, Detroit Seafood Market. Heck, I can go back to uh, what's the name of the, the, the oh, my goodness, the cafe that was down there, Cafe Mahogany. Cafe I'm like, Mahogany. Mahogany days, I'm still mourning that. We don't have a place down there. And I think it's not about the people. And I really want to hear your take on it. But I absolutely have to quote Eric Larson, who gave the most sensitive and caring quote. Um, In response to getting all the money, he said, it is honestly a struggle that we deal with internally on a regular basis to try to be genuinely understanding and sensitive to the broader needs. In these processes, there's winners and losers. That part is tough for us, and it's tough for those who don't get picked. So is it equally tough for you as it is for Eric Larson? Because I feel kind of bad for him. (laughs) Well, you know, let me let me say one thing, and I think that we can all agree that a thriving downtown is something that every major city wants. That's not the question at hand. I think the question at hand for me really is how much, you know, how many resources are actually going to our neighborhoods, which are also essential. Like you don't have a downtown without the neighborhoods. You don't have a downtown without people wanting to come and feel safe and secure and welcome downtown, right? And so this was really a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, unfortunately, right? It was a COVID response amount of money. It was ARPA dollars that had to get out the door. And so the question becomes from a city perspective too, what level of coordination went into all this planning around like how these funding sources were going to come to bear? When you look at the other cities that got sub-grant awards, you know, Grand Rapids in particular, what you see in their application that you don't see in Detroit is a lot about, you know, public space, obviously, but affordable housing, small business support, all the things that had real COVID impacts that we know were, you know, extremely difficult in our neighborhoods. You know, we know that happened downtown. We get it. You know, that is a well-stated fact. But we are still reeling from the effects of COVID in the Detroit neighborhoods. Restaurants still can't staff up. Real estate projects still can't move forwards in a lot of ways because of these financial gaps that have been created because of supply chain issues, because of density issues. 
And so we had a one, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity, in my opinion, to really pump a lot of good money into our neighborhoods in a very purposeful and intentional way. And that just didn't happen. I want to read I want to read your words back to you in in, in this article. Yeah. Uh, you said we don't really have a ton of other funding sources, programs or entities that advocate for the neighborhoods in the same way that, say, the downtown Detroit partnership does for downtown. Sure. Um, I want to ask you about. You know, DDP, Downtown Detroit Partnership, is sort of like almost a trade association and large advocate for, you know, development and uh, the resurgence of downtown. What's missed? What kind of organization can you envision or do you envision, you know, sort of serving as that that trade association for neighborhood based development projects for smaller developers, particularly black smaller developers in our neighborhoods? Yeah, it's a really good question because, you know, when people ask me, like, what are our downtown or what are our neighborhoods missing? I think a, a DDP-like entity, something that champions advocacy, ambassadorship, um, data crunching. I think the data is really critical to what they do downtown that we just don't seem to have a really great resource for, you know, maybe short of Detroit Future City work. We're not getting perception data. We're not getting foot traffic data. We're not getting, you know, revenue and sales data from our neighborhoods. But you have to get that information to inform policy about how you deploy resources into the neighborhood. So I think if we could create an entity or maybe something that lives in the city, you know, the Department of Neighborhoods can only do so much, right? I don't think they're staffed in the same way to provide that level of advocacy for our neighborhoods. So, you know, the question is, you know, how do you fund it? You know, who champions it? I don't I don't have the answer for that, but I think something is critically needed. You know, from advocacy. I'm sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. I think you have to look at root causes, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just accidental that the DDP champions this and neighborhoods don't get championed. It's not like, oh, if only they could see the impact of this. Of course, they see the impact of the DDP, which is, exists essentially as a tax capture that supports the enrichment of downtown with the goal of catalyzing redevelopment and was formed at a time when downtown really was dead in Detroit. We all remember those days where, you know, it's a ghost town down some streets. But I think there's a fair argument that that tax capture is now working against neighborhoods. Looking even beyond these dollars, this once-in-a-lifetime thing, look at the fact that by state law, the dollars they collect from all of the increasing property values downtown are restricted for use downtown. You can't have an ever-growing wealthier and wealthier and wealthier downtown, so it's like a town within a city. And the town is downtown, and the city struggles to keep up. Um, So... Orlando has said um, it's a hundred years. It's a hundred. It's a hundred-year-old organization, but I think the Downtown Development Authority. Yeah, Downtown Development Authority is. Yes, I'm sorry. You're right. That's what I'm speaking of. Downtown Development Authority and the tax capture. And we had Downtown Development Authorities developed all through the state of Michigan, and all of them essentially are now depriving their cities and the counties in which they're established of needed revenue to operate. Um, we would not have the deficit threatening that we have right now if not for a downtown development authority. So it feels to me as though there's something more fundamental than um, not understanding that we have these needs. You know, they have um, they have these neighborhood based folks and we have this guy. We had somebody come out and they said we're doing neighborhood business stuff, bringing no capacity, no tools, no effort, really to help strengthen our efforts on Mac Avenue. Mm. And that's coming I mean, from AGC. 
which is the Economic Growth Corporation Corporation is supposed to really look at economic growth across Detroit, not just in the downtown. Sure. But when they have these ambassadors they send out in the community, they're sending them out without weaponry, you know, without tools. And so it really is, number one, I think, up to that, that small-scale neighborhood developer like Brandon to uh, ensure that, you know, he and his partners are educated on on all of this and all of the, you know, uh, probable resources that can come to a development. Brandon, in the article, um, I think you also stated that um, your project now has to change. Mm-hmm. Tell us tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that becomes increasingly difficult in the neighborhoods because of valuations is providing affordable housing. Right. So we went under the assumption that we could create, you know, we're in one of our projects. It's six residential units on top right now. We wanted to double that. Right. To just you know increase the level of, you know, 50 to 70 percent AMI units that are going to be pumped into the, the neighborhood. Um, we can no longer do that because we don't have a gap financing tool to address the cost. Right. So there are real world ramifications to those funding sources not being at the table the same way on, you know, ground floor retail space. If you have to drive revenue to support your debt service from ground floor retailers, you have to charge them a certain amount of money to do so, right? So the, let's say you had the opportunity to charge somebody a bit less money to make it more affordable, more sustainable, because you don't have that gap tool, you now have to charge them, you know, a different amount of money, which is typically higher, right? So, all these gaps that we're trying to fill have to get shaken out somewhere. And typically it's in the rent because the rent supports the debt, right? Mm-hmm. So it's um, it has a lot of ramifications in terms of affordability, small business curation and development um, just across the board. Do you think that um, affordable rents in projects that you develop are a priority for the city? That's a good question. I think it's a tricky balance to strike, right? I think we could all agree that you need pricing that honors the sustainability factor of a small business, right? Like you never want to set a small business up to fail, right? If I got to charge you $20 a square foot just to make my deal pencil, I'm probably setting a lot of small businesses up for failure in the neighborhoods because we just don't have the same density. The walking traffic's not the same. The drive traffic's not the same as downtown. So I think there's this kind of development this understanding of development that doesn't always translate to the city side sometimes. Yeah, I think some people in the city really get it. Other people are just saying, well, just charge more money. And I'm like, well, you can't just charge more money. There's a very real rent ceiling on the small business side and the residential side. So I think it's always a, a weird balance to strike. And I think they know that, you know, quite honestly, they're all smart people who work down there. I think they know that. I think the question is whether they prioritize that. And that's very different because that's when subsidy comes in. That's when we say, you know what, rents are, it's important that when you develop these projects in your community, we're going to help steer funding sources like this once in a lifetime funding source to your community and help you get the points needed to make this work because we understand the value of that. Mm -hmm. We know that when people are doing projects downtown, affordable rent is not the priority, right, for businesses or for um, residences. And so we end up in this kind of cycle of um, unaffordability and people blame it on the market as though the city doesn't tip the scales of the market towards different players when it wants to. You know, but when I look at a standards and poor's report, what I see is, oh, Detroit is doing well, rent prices are increasing. Detroit is doing well, the square footage, you know, cost per square footage, that's a measure of success, Mm -hmm. not inclusion. And I think 
we need Standard & Poor's and those companies to really start evaluating what's happening in the neighborhoods and agitating for some specific measures that we on the community side push back on the city and work with you to push back and say, wait a minute, let's look at the neighborhoods and whether or not they're becoming more affordable and even more easily developed. So um, I'd love to work with you and other partners on trying to move uh, an agenda for we look at the structures of injustice and trying to create some change in our neighborhoods. I think you, you speak to something that's really important, and that's perception, too, because if you think about think about the appraisal business, and I think we've all seen these articles about how appraisal valuations change because of who has pictures in the home, right? If a white family's in there, the appraisal value goes up $100,000, right? A lot of appraisals aren't even being conducted in public anymore, right? So nobody's coming to the neighborhoods. Nobody's validating the information. People are doing these desktop reviews and saying, well, we think we know what's happening in this area. We've heard what's happening in Detroit in some respects, or we don't really understand what's happening in Detroit. We're just going to ascribe a value based off rent comps or sales comps. And mm -hmm. you have this kind of gap between people who really understand the market versus like how business is conducted, right? And that, I think that's another big issue. It's like we just have a huge perception issue about what's really happening in our neighborhoods and the value of them. Yeah. And we have to stop basing it on the past. Because the past is rooted in injustice. The past is rooted in racism. And so when we base, value, base values on past performance, we're never going to catch up, right? And so you raise a good point of when you drive through and you're required to drive through and document that people are not willing to buy or purchase or rent at this level in this neighborhood and it's not stable, um, then it's always going to be unfair. Um, but I, I, I look forward to, like I said, go on, I'm saying. No, I'm just saying, like, you, this, once again, is an unprecedented amount of public dollars that could have that could have served as free free capital free subsidy to really amplify and uplift the really catalytic cat, catalytic projects that small scale Detroit neighborhood black developers are doing it's such a missed opportunity it's the same old same old and when 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 a bank or when the city comes out with another financial product that has an interest rate that's loan funds and not grant funds we need to bring this back up because let's stop more of the same the you the these White run corporations get the bulk of this free subsidy and they already have millions upon millions of dollars. And then you're telling small scale black developers, we got a loan for you. The interest rates, you know, four percent is good. It's like, no, like we that has to stop. Right. Brand and I think we have to look at the ultimate end game just real quickly. I'm sorry. We have to look at the ultimate end game and ask ourselves who benefits, right? Who is the ultimate beneficiary? And if the ultimate beneficiary is the investor in your community, then you have a problem. And I just want to make sure that we think that through, that we evaluate that and say, how much money are investors, bondholders making in in, in what we're doing here? And who's really pulling the strings? I, I, as Orlando will say, I'm really, really passionate about understanding how um, financialization works in housing and, and also urban and municipal systems, because I think that it's the hidden hand that um, perpetuates injustice. Brandon Hodges, uh, founder of Tribe Development. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Brandon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Keep it locked. We'll be right back.
Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well play well, be well. Visit ecn-detroit.org. All right, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. This week, we're switching things up a little bit. I know we're Authentically Detroit, but we've decided to bring someone from outside of the city on as a guest. With discussions of workers' rights and unionization sweeping the nation from the great resignation to pending strikes in various sectors of the working class, we could not pass up the opportunity to interview rank-and-file candidate for UAW president, Will Lehman. Will, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you joined us. Yes. Go ahead, Dom. Yeah, we got. All right. So you know, I'm listening. I'm I'm really passionate about um, the history of Detroit, and in reading the history of Detroit, I learned a little bit about the history of the UAW and how the UAWs, um, how Detroit's black auto workers really forced the UAW to integrate its ranks and the kind of historic movement in 1941, starting in the first strike in um, Henry Ford um, Ford Motor Company, um, and um, since then um, the UAW was sort of involved um, with willingly or unwillingly, sometimes in civil rights efforts and in helping to establish a black middle class in the city of Detroit. Um, at the same time, um, the union seems to have changed over the years um, and is not the same union that um, helped change our community. So I'm just curious. Um, oh, I, I have to cut off my camera because apparently my internet is bad. I'm curious about what you know about that history um, in Detroit in the 1930s, 1940s. Well, I mean, the uh, the hunger march uh, was led by communists. I don't know if you ever got to see the uh, uh, mural or not mural, I'm sorry, the historical marker there. But uh, it was, you know, white workers marching with black workers. Uh, you know, the idea wasn't to exclude anyone in the working class. And, uh, you know, they were shot at by, uh, you know, goons for Henry Ford, uh, the police, you know, and these were workers marching against police and effectively against the state. Uh, same thing with the Flynn sit-down strike. Everyone promotes FDR as this uh, great progressive person, yet uh, the National Guard was called on uh, the Flint sit-down strikers, uh, you know, when they were trying to uh, make a better living for themselves. And I mean, as far as that uh, history goes, you know, the, the union was much more dynamic. It was much more worker-oriented. Uh, today, we see naturally 450 of these international reps, uh, you know, typists, stenographers. And I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Curry when I was on the uh, debate, you know, what's the difference between a typist and a stenographer? Uh, these are people that are making over $100,000 a year of our dues money. And, uh, you know, there are workers that in Michigan that are starting at $14 an hour in the UAW. But as far as the history goes, you know, we didn't start off with this uh, giant bureaucracy. It was much more worker oriented. And kind of where the UAW went bad was, uh, you know, Ruther was a socialist. Then he turned 
away from socialism, thought that gains could be achieved under capitalism and maintained under capitalism. And uh, capitalism exploits everyone, every worker, regardless of uh, what nation we're in, what color we are. Uh, it's the great exploiter is capitalism. Whereas I'm calling, I'm a socialist and I'm calling for, uh, you know, workers to recognize that we need to be united no matter where we are. You know, it's not just a Detroit issue or a, a Flint issue. Um, it's, it's a world issue. And uh, workers all over the world are being exploited by these corporations. So we need to fight back with a global struggle. And we don't need bureaucrats to do that. That's why I call for rank and file committees to be formed. Uh, you know, you, union members should have the right to do what we want with that $1.16 billion in assets that we've accrued with our dues money. And uh, we should be able to directly decide that because the bureaucracy, as I call it, uh, the bureaucratic layer of the union, not the workers, uh, has proven it can't be uh, do the right things for us, you know, with that money. It's proven it's tried to embezzle it, even at locals like Local 412 with uh, Timothy Edmonds, embezzled $2 million and was gambling with those workers' dues. So there is a great, there used to be a lot of socialists. As I said, Ruther uh, worked to get them out. And we see degradation over 40 years of the UAW as a result. How do you think? How, go ahead, Donna. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. How do you think um, the workers are responding um, to to your campaign and to some of the tenets uh, that you laid out? Uh, the rank and file movement, abolishing the UAW uh, apparatus. Um, a program that fights against uh, corporatization and you actually, you know, stating and naming that uh, you are a, soci a socialist. How How is that landing with workers? Uh, a lot of workers, pretty much the most opposition I get is, I don't know about the socialism thing, but I agree with everything else you're saying. <laughs> you know, the idea, the idea to have an international fight, you know, we're all working class and Modern workers recognize that, you know, a lot of times uh, different media likes to make workers out to be backwards, only interested in this America first kind of narrative. And I mean, Joe Biden certainly promoted that when he visited Mack Trucks last year, had American flags all over the place, was on a down week, didn't want workers to be there. And Trump is just as bad. Uh, well, worse. I mean, Trump's an outright fascist. You know, this is not serving uh, the, any working class's interests, no matter what nation they're from, you know, the idea that we can just win in a country. And a lot of workers are responding very favorably uh, to that idea. You know, GM's a multinational corporation. Same thing with Ford. I'm sorry, was she, she trying to speak? No, I was just going to say, I mean, I agree that there's this workers thing, but there is also racism within the ranks of the UAW and within the plants. Um, in a plant, and I believe Toledo, there were nooses hung inside the plant and a lot of toleration of abuse of people. Sometimes women are sometimes abused within there. So I think that while we are all workers, we are not all workers on equal footing, even though all workers may have to fight against, um, against some of the same systems. To what extent does your candidacy or does your campaign acknowledge some of the very specific challenges Black people and women experience and other people of color experience in these plants? Well, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that discrimination doesn't exist. I'm definitely not saying that. Uh, but it is among, from what, I've, from what I've seen along the way, it is among a very 
narrow layer of workers. And I haven't heard of anyone that has said anything, at least not to me or not to anyone in my campaign, that has said anything denigrating uh, to workers based on a color or a nation. Um, not to my campaign, not saying it doesn't exist. It absolutely does. But at the same time, I'm here to point out that uh, the class is the thing that ha is our common bond. And, you know, we can't have, we can't be discriminating against anyone based on nation or color or anything like that. We need to recognize that we're all the working class. So that's what I'm, I'm promoting that, you know, working class unity. And that's how you beat uh, this type of discrimination, you know, is, yeah, is having those come. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it's kind of structural. But are you familiar with the A. Philip Randolph Institute? Um, I don't think so. Okay. That's an institute. A it's it's a, a Black Union Institute within the UIW that has been around. I don't know how long, Orlando. You're the fact checker today. Um, but it's been around. <laughs> It's, it's been around for some time. And one of our community members, Sherry King, is um, the president of the A. Philip Randolph Institute in Detroit. I'm wondering if they are involved in, because I've also heard of another organization, which is um, Unite All Workers for Democracy. Uh, are you are you familiar with them? I am. That's that's who's backing Sean Fain. OK. Is that what they were formed to do? Uh, to back Sean Fain specifically, no, I yeah. believe they existed before Fain, but Fain is their reform candidate. And um, I mean, same thing with if you watch the debate, which I encourage every worker to do. I mean, he they brought up, uh, you know, woman, uh, women representation, you know, in the bureaucrat in the bureaucratic layer, essentially. And, uh, you know, these these are people that are talking about advancing, you know, a specific person based on. Uh, you know, gender or, uh, uh, well, in, that, in the debate, it was just about that, but they completely ignore the workers on the floor. You know, like I, like I mentioned in the debate, my campaign talked to one uh, woman who uh, was pregnant and ended up having a miscarriage on the line because she was forced to do a job she wasn't supposed to do. Now, that's where I'm talking about. We need that, you know, workers need to unite and not let things happen like that. Because the UA, like these bureaucrats, are only con uh, concerned with you know advancing someone's career. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm talking about every worker being united on these things. You know, not not about a an appointment based on you know any you know unique uh, kind of thing. But you know, workers need to recognize that that's where we need to be solid at it's the working class level. And as far as exploitation, I mean, I started with uh, workers of color at my plant. And we're all in a tier and we're all uh, without pensions, you know, working for less than uh, other workers in the plant. And, uh, you know, we're all exploited, at least for the people that started uh, with me in the same way, uh, regardless of skin color. And, you know, there are other workers in the plant that are exploited even worse than we are. So, you know, that's the main thing is, uh, you know, that capitalist exploitation of the workforce. You know, I don't think it. We should divide each other up based on anything. I mean, if that I a, helps. Yeah, I got a question about this $1.8 billion um, in assets that is collected. And we know some of that goes toward um, the strike fund. How is uh, the current structure of the UAW utilizing and spending those dollars? And what would you do with uh, that those, those assets? 
Well, the what I'm advancing is that should all be strike fund. You know, it shouldn't be some of those assets. It's like 800 some million is uh, the strike fund. Uh, but the total, you know, that 300 extra million is in things like the Solidarity House uh, training centers. And the training centers is where uh, they basically the UAW bureaucrats were using those as slush funds to embezzle money. And uh, Black Lake, uh, that resort, uh, that would all be sold. The money needs to financially back our struggles. And we need to be the ones and fully back. You know, like right now we get $400 a week in strike pay. It needs to be full. It needs, if a worker goes out on strike and they're paying dues to that organization, that money should back workers' struggles. You know, like you wouldn't have a bank account and about to lose your house and say, no, you need to protect the bank account. You would pay at whatever you need to out of it in order to protect, you know, your house or your apartment or whatever you need to protect. That's what the strike fund should be there for. Workers shouldn't be protecting the fund. The fund should be protecting the workers. And that's me, not how the UA. Go ahead. No, you go. Let me ask you a follow up to that. Uh, uh, some of some of the assets that the UAW has would be sold, and you mentioned Solidarity House. Uh, you know, I want to contextualize this conversation within the framework of Detroit, and Detroit being the location where the UAW World Headquarters is in in the Solidarity House. And I think a lot of Detroiters, especially UAW workers, take comfort not only in their locals but also having uh, the UAW World Headquarters here in the city of Detroit, where we pro- where we probably have most voice. Than you know, sort of other cities. Um, how do, how do you reconcile that? Are you talking to Detroiters? How often have you been here? What are you seeing? What are you thinking? Well, I was only in Detroit, I believe, twice. Um, it's to me, it's about using those assets for every worker in the UAW. You know, constantly equality is my main thing. You know, every worker having equal access to everything. So I understand. You know, the Solidarity House is currently the base, but the reality is the base for every worker should be on their shop floor. You know, every shop floor should be organized, have a rank and file committee, and that's how you keep uh, corruption out of things. You know, when you have, there, there are workers I talked to along the way that are outside of Detroit that don't even know what Solidarity House is, don't even know who Ray Curry is, because they they don't make themselves relevant in the struggles of workers. And when the UAW was first founded, uh, there was no Solidarity House. And that was the strongest point of the UAW when they were willing to fight for things. And I'm I'm envisioning the way I'm talking about now is if the UAW had followed a progressive layer, whereas they, they followed kind of a reactionary nationalist kind of approach to how they advanced over the decades. And that's why you see the drop in membership. That's why you see the corruption and this growth of this bureaucratic layer. So I'm not concerned Personally, I understand the the buildings there now, but it's about the workers to me and every factory and every parts maker and every university too. You know, there's UAW represented universities and they're absolutely essential. Education is the most essential thing to the working class and healthcare. Uh, you know, we need these social services as workers. We want, you know, every worker wants to, their kid to have a better opportunity. So they should have that kind of thing, too. But anyway, equality is the number one goal, and it's about distributing everything equally. So it's not about keeping, you know, these assets. It's about making sure that they have the backing financially, you know, in fights going forward. 
So I have a question because um, I still want to contextualize it to Detroit. Um, for Detroiters who listen to our show, in our community, we have been fighting um, FCA or now Salinas against toxins as a release from the automotive plant, which are really just behind our building. And I, we, while we fight about that, and we also are partnering with some folks who are also members of the union, um, I'm wondering what is the impact of toxins on workers in plants? And is that prioritized? Is there, do you think the UAW should be fighting? Because if we're worried about their release into the air around us, people might be breathing them inside the plants. Is that true? And if so, what more could be done to protect their health? Well, there are lots of things that workers would do to protect our health if we were in charge of the way, you know, work was carried out. And, you know, as, as far as the, that's something with capitalism, it only views the dollar as the number one goal. It doesn't care about what it does to these uh, any of these cities. And I understand the idea about, you know, this is Detroit podcast and, you know, talking about it with just Detroit. But these are international issues. You know what I mean? Like we can't you can't fight at just one spot uh, to bring about the kind of change you need. And no doubt. But I mean, all politics is local. Right. And so people based on based on vote based on local um, local perceptions. And so it feels to me as though there's Detroit workers have to understand how this is going to impact them. And even though you can say everybody's got it, it feels like having some conversation with Detroit workers would make sense, but that's just me. Um, I think also um, looking at this, however, um, I'm wondering because this is the first time rank and file members have been able to vote for union leadership. Is that true? Yes. And it's because of the corruption scandal. It's because the government basically wants to make the UAW look like a credible workers organization. So they're opening up this tiny slice of some kind of democratic effort for the workers. It's not enough. Workers need more democracy than this. Uh, I don't run on the position that I'm going to fix everything. I'm telling workers they need to take power, uh, that it's not just going to be up to, you know, voting for me and I'll fix it. That's not how I'm running this. But yes, it is true. Okay. Um, how have the workers in Detroit received you? You said you've been here once, right? How did they receive you when you came? Uh, twice. Um, I Like I said, I've been received well in terms of, I haven't had anyone really negative against me. Uh, one person was upset that I was wearing a mask one time, but I had a short conversation with him. And by the end, I got his number. But, uh, you know, workers do recognize these issues Workers are more modern than they get credit for. Let me put it that way. They recognize these issues are global issues. They handle the parts. They know it's made from all over and that there are workers just like them that made them somewhere else in the world. And I think that, you know, workers really do see this as a global struggle. Yeah, I I, I appreciate that perspective. Um, I, I do, however, know that... Uh, what happens particularly within uh, the big three corporate structure and its base, its headquarters being here in the city of Detroit and metropolitan Detroit reverberates internationally, but it starts here. And so my hope for you, Will, is that you will continue to come and spend some time here and talk to more Detroiters and more uh, workers. We got to take a quick break, but more with uh, Will Lehman. We will be right back. Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? 
Well, the Detroit Eastside Engage Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to help make that dream a reality. Located inside the Sotomayor, the DEEP Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters for Detroiters. All right, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. And we're back with Will Lehman, Lehman discussing workers' rights and his candidacy for UAW president. Donna, you had a question. I did. Um, I just wanted to um to understand if you say that these um these workers' rights that you're working to institute apply to workers worldwide. Are workers real worldwide members of the UAW? Um, are Mexican auto workers members of the UAW, or are you trying to unionize in other um, na- nations? Well, I stress that rank and file committees can be built anywhere. It's not about paying dues to the UAW. Uh, you know, to recognize that you're working class just like I am. You know, I'm on a fo- I'm on a factory floor. You just like Mexican workers are, uh, or workers anywhere else. Chinese uh, auto workers, Russian auto workers, Ukrainian auto workers. We have a common uh, bond. Um, so it's not about paying dues to me so much as it is, you know, workers organizing on those floors as well in rank and file committees. Uh, you know, if they want to join the UAW and pay dues, that's great. You know, if they want to, but uh, assuming, assuming that they can, assuming that unionization is allowed where they are and they won't lose their jobs. Right. Right. Well, there is going to be a right in every nation. Right. Well, there is going to be, you know, struggle against the state, not only here, but abroad. Uh, You know, workers can organize and not, I mean, with relative anonymity, you know, in a rank and file committee. And we welcome them writing in no matter where they are or what industry they're in. Um, You know, as far as contacting my campaign, you know, will for UAW president at gmail.com. If there are any Detroiters that do want to talk to me, whether you're an auto worker or not, I'd welcome the conversation. Uh, same thing with if you, if you go to my website, willforuawpresident.org. Uh, there's other ways to contact me on there. But it, it is about working class unity uh, throughout any, all these countries. So it's not I'm only not, about UAW. I'm not disagreeing with you. I just look at the international context and look at people who are, you know, can be fired and and hired at will and whatever, and where there are no governmental protections around unions beating people and other things. So I think it's everybody's struggling with workers' rights, but it feels like workers have more rights in America than they do in many of the other places, which is one of the reasons why so many jobs have been offshore, because people can be underpaid and um, they not have the benefits that they have here. So it's just you know, in a, in a real world, in a, in a great world, this would happen. In this world, it feels like we have this fight within our boundaries around the UAW. And then there might be a fight to see where you could have UAW or other types of union branches across the world. 
Um, but you're running to lead the UAW, right? No, I'm running to uh, put power directly in workers' hands and abolish the bureaucratic layer of the UAW. The workers are are the layer I'm appealing to. The 372,000 active and 600,000 well, retired. If they vote for you, if they vote for you, they will vote for you to do what? Abolish the bureaucratic layer of the UAW. Those 450 uh, members in the international and the uh, the idea is that workers need to take power into their own hands. You know, so we what can democrat running, running for. What's Ray Curry running for? Yes. Basically reform. Uh, all the other candidates say they can. Is everybody running for president of the UAW? Uh, yes. Is everybody else running for president of the UAW? Yeah, there's Ray Curry, there's Brian Keller, there's Sean Fain, there's Mark Gibby Gibson. Uh, he was wearing a white fedora, had an American flag background, if you watch the debate, uh, which I would encourage every worker to do. And uh, yeah, they're all running for reform of the bureaucratic layer. And I'm running to say workers need the power directly in our hands because we can decide the way forward. And I, 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 think, I think the line of questioning is trying to get at Will and what we're, I guess what we're trying to get at is if you run and you win, you will be de facto the president of the UAW. Is that correct? correct. Okay. Yes. yes. Okay. All right. That's, that's what I was trying to get at. You're all Sorry. running for the presidency. And as president, you would dissolve the organization that you now were made leader of. Is that your intent? No, not quite. Um, the power to make the changes that I'm talking about are only going to be achieved in the uh, way workers work to take power. It's not going to be just an election and I, I now have uh, the power only in my hands to make the changes I'm talking about. Um, I'm not trying to be evasive. I'm just saying that the reality is workers do need to take that power. Uh, they already have it, like realistically, the power to strike right now. They could do that if they chose to. But I know. Uh, we need organization to carry out that kind of thing. And I'm as far as I did want to understand what, you, what the UAW would look like with you as president. Can you describe what the organization would you fire everybody? You said you're going to close down these various things. Would you hire people differently or reassign people? What would it look like? The organization? Well, the reassignments would be uh, workers back to uh, and anyone in the international, if they want a job in the UAW, they can go back to the floor. They can go back to the conditions that they negotiated to see how awful these contracts are. Okay. And as far as, you know, like America being a better source of labor or being more uh, kind of peaceful or uh, whatever. I mean, I'm not trying to misframe your words, but, uh, you know, there are workers at Ventra and Evar, Michigan, UAW represented, making $14 an hour. And they were told at contract time that they couldn't get better by an international rep. They were told this. They wouldn't be getting any better than that because they're not the big three. You know, so there's a great amount of inequality in America. Rail workers right now are being blocked from striking by the government, President, uh, Presidential Emergency Board, 120,000 rail workers being blocked from trying to strike. Uh, so there are a lot of things in America that are definitely uh, unequal and against the working class. It's I agree. Not, I completely agree with you. I was not in any way defending the status quo at all. My gosh. That I'm, unionization I, needs to grow in our nation. Um, unions have helped to pr protect workers' rights. So please don't misunderstand what I was saying. I was right. saying that right now, working within the boundaries of our nation, there's a lot of work to be done. 
And it seems like the UAW working with existing membership, like I actually teach at Columbia. So when Columbia University struck last year, that was a real big issue for me. I lived it, right? I had my um, my student assistant part of the, the strike. I get it and I support it. Um, we need equality. I was really trying to understand the scope of your work as president of the UAW, whether it was to try to unionize places which were difficult or what you were going to do inside the existing UAW. And it's an international organization. I understand that it's more the United States, but within the existing structure of the UAW. I was I was curious about that. Well, well I, I have a question um, for you. Um, and it, it's sort of a right-sized question because we've been talking a lot about rank and file committees. And Donna and I know what that means, but I'm not sure if the average listener who is outside of the industry uh, understands what that is. So can you walk us through what a rank and file committee is? So the rank and file are every worker on the shop floor. They're the layer that I'm appealing to. Everyone that clocks in and out, that uh, produces and that produces the profits that the uh, were are exploited off us by GM, Ford, Volvo, whoever. Uh, those are the workers on the floor that I'm appealing to. Or in the case of teachers, postgraduates, uh, anyone in anyone doing the work, the working class, that's who I'm appealing to. That's who the rank and file is. The rank and file committee is just a committee of workers that recognize that the changes I'm talking about need to be made. And they need to organize to build that committee. You know, we need to organize to have that understanding that we need to take the fight out of the hands sometimes of what the UAW says is allowed. Uh, and I'll give it a brief example. You know, when workers vote to strike, when workers vote against tentative agreements, you know, we need to be directly able to do the things that we're trying to do to advance that fight. And I'm not trying to work only within, you know, the framework of what capitalism says is allowed, what the state says is allowed. We're in 2022 and all these problems still exist because we're working within that framework. Workers need to advance our own agenda. If we want uh, climate justice, if we want to end discrimination, that's not going to be through capitalism. That's going to be through socialism. Workers need to have the power to end that. So, and you know, you know, I want to also just you know state that <laughs> socialism isn't a new thing in this country. I mean, we had a conversation on hot takes about <laughs> Donna. Would you venture to say a form of socialism given to <laughs> corporate entities to you know do the work uh, that they are you know designed to do and carry out and you know, I'll, no. I'll call that financialization and corporatization, right? Yeah. And um, socialism is one of those things where people are afraid of it because you're raised to be afraid of it, right? And yeah. so when people hear the word um, socialism, they get scared. You know that. Um, it's like, oh, that's the, you know, the bad thing. And so um, you, sometimes people have to be educated about what all of these things mean. What steps will you take to sort of demystify that um, because people know when they're being treated unjustly, right? I mean, people know if they're forced to work when they're pregnant and if they're breathing bad air and they're working long, long hours. People understand injustice, but I think people don't understand the solutions that you're proposing at all times. And maybe a lot of the workers do, but what can you do to help educate people about what that will look like in your presidency? A little bit more. I, I get some of what you're saying. You're going to send the union leadership back to the floor so they can observe what the consequences are of decisions they make. They can't just sit in ivory towers, so to speak, right? But what Absolutely. else? Uh, well, more organizing. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, workers 
we need to have open dialogues and the rank and file committees can have that. A lot of sort of the mystification, I believe, stems from Stalinism, you know, and this kind of uh, calling things socialism when they're not. And, you know, even reading theory and things like that, reading Marx, reading Trotsky, you know, those are things that workers shouldn't be afraid to do, you know, hear it right from people that, you know, theorize these things. Uh, so, yeah, it isn't anything new, but, uh, you know, in terms of countries that call themselves socialist or communist and clearly aren't, they'll have some kind of workers uh, control here or there. You know, we need to really look at what things really are, like you said, and, you know, the education on that is critical and that can be done in the rank and file committees too. you know, organizing, reading, discussing uh, those things need to be done because that's how we get an accurate appraisal of what each situation is. Okay. All right. Will, our last question, we want to allow you uh, the opportunity to have some parting words. Uh, what do you want to say to uh, UAW workers um, who are going to be voting um, in this upcoming election? What are your parting words? You've got about a minute. Well, I would say to workers that uh, the reality is we're the only ones that have our backs. We need to unite across boundaries, across borders. Uh, we need to understand that our fights are all the same. And I think a lot of workers do. It's not only about an election. We're going to continue to face, even after this election, uh, multiple difficulties. And we need to have the type of organizations that can confront those difficulties. That's rank and file committees. Uh, it's not only, as I said, the ballots are going out October 17th. They need to get back as quick as you can. But it's not only about voting. It's about, you know, that working class. If we're going to have working class power, then we need to build it. If we're going to avoid a third world war, then we need to make the push to avoid it. And if we're going to end this discrimination in the workforce, uh, if we're going to end uh, inequality and bad working conditions and unsafe working conditions, we've got to be the one to step forward and do it. Nothing is going to be handed to us. That's what the workers historically did. Uh, you know, Ford didn't build any kind of middle class in America. Any gains in the working class in America were always fought in hard struggles for uh, by workers. It was never handed to him. So we got to recognize that, build, and then make those steps forward. It's not going to be done under traditional methods, and we really have to be the ones to fight for it. All right, Will Lehman, candidate for the UAW presidency. Thank you so much for coming on Authentically Detroit. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank no you. Problem. All right, Donna, it is time for shout outs. I know it's been one heck of a couple of weeks, but who you got? Oh, wow. Um, I have um, <laughs> I have to defer to you. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. I would like to shout out uh, the group that's here with the Economy League from Philly doing sort of this learning trip about Detroit and different facets of our economy, our people, and our experience. I had the opportunity to be the opening keynote in partnership with Ingrid LaFleur Sunday morning. And so shout out to Kirsten, um, who really took, you know, the immersive approach when learning about Detroit in uh, planning this conference. She was here numerous times meeting and talking to a lot of people to plan this conference. And I think that um, I think she did a good job considering, you know, that she's not from here and did her best to do 
you know, the right kind of learning, but also shout out to artists and Afrofuturists and friend Ingrid LaFleur. I just love- And socialist. And socialist. <laughs> Didn't she run from mayor in Detroit? She ran for mayor of Detroit. She and you know that uh, that campaign that went along in the city of Detroit for a while that says there are black people in the future. That was Ingrid LaFleur. So uh, those are my shout outs. Donna, you got shout outs? Um, once again, shout out to the team at ECN. Um, I'm starting to make some progress in my return. Shout out to the ECN board of directors and also shout out to um, all of our funders who continue to support our work. Um, this has been sort of a difficult journey. Um, but I'm starting to feel a little bit more like myself and hopeful um, about what we're going to see ahead. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. We thank you so much for listening and we want you to catch the wave.